Alrighty, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Hinnah, Madhuhu, wa Nasalli, ala Rasulih al-Kareem, Ma'bad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And we're looking at this chapter, The Sacred and Profane in Islamic Law. Uh, Adil, you haven't been here for a while. Why don't you read for us? <laughs> the Sacred and the Profane in Islamic Law. This relationship between the sacred and profane was negotiated in Islamic law through the ongoing historical dynamics, demarcating... Dim- boundaries between Sharia and Fiqh. Okay, so <clears throat> what are we talking about here? Uh, the sacred and the profane is a very common category that exists throughout our modern Western lives that we don't realize. The terms we often use are the, are the religious and the secular. And so the idea of the secular, the word secular literally means worldly. And and the idea of secularization is that over the course of European history, there are a lot of social services that were handled by the church that steadily uh, were taken over by forces, institutions outside of the church. The easiest one to identify, of course, is governance itself. That if you look at a lot of the history of, in the Middle Ages especially, of Europe, an empire or a king's authority came by endorsement from the church. And charity and everything that we put in the universe of charity, like taking care of orphans and such, that was all handled by the church. With the rise of the nation state, the centrality of the church was pushed to the side, meaning we didn't need the church to give us legitimacy. We have an army to give us legitimacy. And we don't need to rely upon the church to, to distribute charity. We can do it much more efficiently than the church. And so part of the rise of Protestantism is also going, is related to the rise of the nation state. And all of that is related to the pushing to the side of the church. And so then we have these two realms, the secular and the sacred. And the way it plays out in terms of modernity in our postmodern era is that the public realm is secular, the private realm is sacred. Meaning religion, even when it's a collective affair, it's a private matter. You do your religion, I do mine. You don't mess with me, I don't mess with you. And it's such a private matter that the unique thing in terms of the American experience is that it's very common to have more than one religion represented in the same household. That there's this interesting study that was done, I think by, by some scholars at Drew University about 15 years ago, where they studied the religious life of people in New Jersey. And they, they were surprised by how many houses had two to three different religions present in the same house. And keep in mind for them, Catholic and Protestant, in that categorization would be two different religions because you go to two different churches. And this is looked at as something new in all of human history. And so what the idea is that the more public something is, the more secular it is, more it's in the bounds of the collective and not in the authority of, of the church or the clergy or the religion. The more private it is, then the more up to you what, what it is. You know, is it a religious thing or is it also still a secular thing? And so that's a big, big modern question. And secular means worldly profane, how do we translate profane? Like, what does the word profanity mean? Like profanity is usually referring to like bad words, right? Yeah. And so the idea of the sacred <laughs> and the profane, that pairing 
this comes back to a sociologist from the 1800s, but it's basically that one part is pure, that's the sacred, and the other part is corrupt. But when we're using the word secular, we're not saying that the secular world is corrupt. We don't think of, necessarily think of, associate corruption with secularity. Uh, what do we think of? We think of, you know, a value system that is keeping religion in check, that's keeping order and all of that. Whether that's the case or not is a different issue. But the key thing is to understand what is this, this binary of sacred and profane. It's the religious and the secular. So that became an issue for Europe, but then by extension became an issue for everyone else. Now the difference, the fundamental difference between Islam and Catholicism is what? That we don't have a central authority. That in the church, you have the Pope. The Pope is the central authority. And the Catholic church is essentially a company. So me working at Loyola, I'm an employee of the Catholic church. And with the CEO, so to speak, is, is the Pope. And it's this whole hierarchy, just like a company. And even if you're growing up and going to Catholic school, They'll, uh, at random points, even tell you that the church is the oldest continuously running company in, in the world. Islam operates completely differently. Unless you're part of a specific tariqa or a movement or something, then there's no central authority, which means the community is the authority. And, and then whoever the community either gives legitimacy to or yields legitimacy to becomes the power, like the king or the president or the dictator or what have you. And the king, depending upon how much power the king has, may have the power to dictate religion. Usually, it happens more often by elevating scholars that dictate the type of religion you want. So if the king says, I'm passing a fatwa on XYZ, most people are not going to listen. But if the king raises a scholar who will say all those things, then everyone's going to listen to the scholar. You know, so we don't have a clergy system. We have a scholar system that we still defer to. But the difference is that if you don't listen to the clergy, you know, in Catholicism, you're in murky waters. The clergy, the priest, is the extension of the Pope, who is the extension of God, the voice of God. Whereas the scholar is like your doctor. Obviously, in many of our back home cultures and communities, even locally, they might regard the scholars having the same authority as the Pope. But officially speaking, you know, the scholar doesn't have any more authority than a doctor does. You can go to it for a second opinion to a different scholar and such. And so navigating what is secular and worldly is a little bit harder to do in terms of the, 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 the sharp distinction that we had in Catholicism. Well, let's continue and see what he says. All right, uh, I'll continue it, but beyond this. But beyond this, there were several other conceptual categories and functional mechanisms through which sacred and temporal spaces were negotiated in Islamic law. Okay, so again, the key issue here is the spaces. So sacred and temporal spaces and, and in terms of who has authority over what. So think of your house, what takes place in your house, nobody has authority over it except for you do, officially. Obviously, with all the different types of surveillance that, are, that, that takes place, we have a lot of people who, a lot, we have different companies and authorities that, uh, <clears throat> that invade into our, our, our private space. I mean, I even often, you know, it's, I haven't taught the subject in a while, but I often even teach that, you know, television is an invasion of privacy. You're letting people, even though if they're imaginary, you're letting people into your mind, into your heart, that you would never physically let those same people inside your house, right? 
that's one side of it. The other side of it is, you know, who knows how many different ways we're being monitored, even like, you know, with the cameras we have on our computers and such. But officially in our society, what's taking place in your home is, is so to speak, sacred space. It can't be invaded without a warrant. What's taking place in your house of worship is considered to be sacred space. Everything else, temporal. It's, you know, it's the government's jurisdiction. They have authority over all of that, you know, in terms of controlling things. And, and so I will step away for a moment. Uh, I'm going to do you want to read among these categories. Sure. I'm sorry. I'm bad at the phone. Okay. I'm not 20 anymore. Um, hold on. I'm trying to find it. I can find it uh, right here. Okay. Um, among these categories was the conceptual differentiation between ibadat, which is laws dealing with matters of ritual, and muamalat, laws pertaining to human dealings and in intercourses. In theory, all Islamic laws are divided into one of these two categories. Ibadat are laws that regulate the relationship between God and humans, and muamalat are laws that regulate the relationship of humans with one another. Okay, yeah, so, so here in terms of Islamic law, the categorization is not based on space, but it's based mm -hmm. on action. And so ibadat, acts of worship, are considered to be non-rational. <clears throat> Meaning we do them, why? Because we're prescribed to do them. Why do we do these with these steps? Because that's how we're prescribed. No matter how much explanation I can give, the only real explanation for why we have two rakats, why we have five prayers, why we fast in mm -hmm. Ramadan, is because that's what we're prescribed. Non-rational. Keep in mind, I'm not saying it's irrational. I'm saying it's non-rational. Mm -hmm. It's not rationally explainable. Mm -hmm. Well, amalat would be the other categories. And so that would can, that can let be broken down into two major categories, which would be social interaction and then financial transactions. Mm -hmm. And so social interaction would be include marriage, divorce, food consumption, things like that. And then financial transactions, loans, purchases, all those things. And, and, and so, so when you do not have a centralized authority and you don't have this easy boundary between the sacred and profane in terms of institutions, here they get evaluated by way of action. And so this part we've, we've discussed before, but the general principle is acts of worship because they're non-rational. Your goal is to preserve them as precisely as you can, regardless of where you are. Obviously, you're going to have exceptions even there. Suppose you have bad weather. Suppose you have your oppression or something. But in general, as well as you can, you preserve uh, those acts of worship exactly as they were done. Well, Amalat, however, you're negotiating between what is prescribed and how you do things in your particular society. So their culture will be a consideration, much more. Culture is secondarily consideration in, in Ibadat. So for example, by culture, I don't mean, you know, the spices that we use in our food, but what are the normal steps you take in your particular community? Mm -hmm. So for example, in American society, uh, women have agency in, in religious matters, uh, much more than they do back in India, Pakistan. India, Pakistan, it's very common to have a masjid that's men only. Okay. Uh, whereas here, it's more of the anomaly to have a masjid that's men only. Nevertheless, there's still issues in terms of how space is organized, you know, that the mustard space for a woman, even if we say women have full agency here is usually, you know, very, very lacking. 
And so there's other matters there. But the point is that you will see some involvement of culture, but still men and women pray separately, right? no matter what the situation is. <clears throat> it's, uh, there are the rare mustards in probably in all of America, there might be less than five where you actually have men and women pray intermingled with each other. That's, that's the absolute anomaly. And, and so, so, so that was the one big point I was gonna mention and I've forgotten the other one, so we'll come back to it. All right, um, uh, I'm gonna just continue reading. Mm -hmm. we're, we're at as to issues. Uh, let's, oh, okay, you just reminded me. Okay, so the, the terms we commonly use for uh, where we find the category of ibadat are the rights of Allah. Or the duties owed to Allah, which is hukuk al hukuk Allah. And the rights that are uh, that are that we have that or the responsibilities that we have to people would be hukuk al ibad. So hukuk Allah, and then hukuk al ibad. Mm -hmm. So those would be the, the other ways these categories are understood. And the idea of hukuk. So ibadat and muamalat is focused on the actions. Hukuk is focused on the responsibilities. And so there are some actions that are my responsibilities to God. There are some actions that are my responsibilities to other people. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so continue where it says, uh, in theory, uh, or I don't know, no, the next sentence, as to issues, yeah. Okay. As to issues falling under the category of ibadat, there is a legal presumption in favor of literalism and for the rejection of any innovations or novel practices. Okay, so that was the point that I was mm -hmm. making that the goal mm -hmm. is to keep them exactly as is. Okay. So the word innovation, bid'ah, mm -hmm. uh, an introduction of something that is different will still be evaluated. Mm -hmm. So from the moment you say your first Allahu Akbar at the beginning of prayer, do you say, do you say salam at the end of prayer? general principle is nothing in, the, in this, that space in between. No action can be changed or introduced. Mm -hmm. uh, but what about everything outside of that? Mm -hmm. So uh, the masjid of the prophet, peace upon him, didn't even have a roof. Mm -hmm. So it would be a good innovation for a mosque to have a roof, to have heating, to have lighting, to have carpeting, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the prophet at his time, the Quran was not in physical book form, except for a few people who could read and write. But that's a good innovation to have it printed and published and all of that. Translation is an innovation that was even debated very hotly. Is it okay to translate? Because then people are going to get disconnected from Arabic. You're not going to be able to get all translate all meanings into one you know, translation. And so these are all debated things that get evaluated. Are these beneficial or are these detrimental innovations? And so that's what's looked at, but the default is you change nothing. Okay. All right, continue. Yep. However, in the case of Muamalat, the opposite presumption applies. Innovations or creative determinations are favored. Let's see. I'll, or if you want, you pardon? can try. You can read it. You can try to read the Arabic if you want. Sure. Al asal fi al ibadat al itiba wa al asal fi al muamalat al ibtida. Yeah, nice. So the root in ibadat is ittiba, is that you follow. Okay. So asal is the root, fi in al ibadat, al ittiba is that you follow. Wa and al asal, the root, fi in al muamalat, so social interaction, is al ibtida, that you consider innovations, you consider introductions. Okay. 
So the relation, I'm sorry, the rationale behind this categorical division is that when it comes to space occupied exclusively by how people worship the divine, there is a presumption against defense, deference to human reason, material interests and discretion. Conversely in space occupied by what the jurists used to describe as the pragmatics, hold on, sorry. <laughs> pragmatics of social interaction, there is a presumption in favor of the ration, rational faculties and practical experiences of human beings, underscoring the difference between ibadat and muamalat was the fact that not only were the two identified as distinct and separate fields and specialties of law, but it was also quite possible to specialize and become an authority in one field, but not the other. Fiqh al-ibadat or fiqh al-muamalat. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so we would even, so I, I split muamalat into two categories and there's actually a third one that I thought he would be addressing here. And that's the that's, uh, governance. Mm -hmm. So social interaction, finance transactions, and then governance uh, as well. A lot of times that is its own category completely. Mm -hmm. And, and a big uh, there's a couple of big words that he uses here that are very important. The pragmatics of social interaction. That often the goal, the philosophical goal of the jurist is to err towards stability, mm -hmm. not towards change. The religion itself often is about change, right? Here's the mm -hmm. person I am. To go to paradise, I need to become like this person. And so the, the whole focus is change. But that is not the focus of law. The focus mm -hmm. of law is stability. And so thus, often you're looking for what is essentially the most pragmatic solution, the most pragmatic answer to a question. The one that will cause the least disruption into people's lives. Mm -hmm. And then another point that's implicit here is just the use of rational that we said that ibadat, acts of worship, are non-rational. However, just about everything in matters of social interaction, finance, governance, those are matters of rational exploration. This is one of the gifts of Islamic law. If you compare this with the law of the Torah, for example, so the Sharia of Musa, peace be upon him, it is very difficult to figure out rational explanations for these numerous rules that you have in like Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and such. Whereas uh, one of the amazing gifts of the Sharia of Muhammad, peace be upon him, is that it is almost completely rational. That you can figure out, okay, what is the purpose for this ruling? And then uh, contrasting the spirit of the law with the letter of the law, in this particular person's situation, how can we at least figure out how to fulfill the spirit of the law? And that's vitally important in the whole construction of Islamic law, that it is a rational enterprise outside of acts of worship. And it's vitally important in Islamic law that acts of worship, however, are non-rational. So the Protestant shift from Catholicism is that like in Catholicism, you know, if you go to Sunday mass, you have all these steps that you have to take. You know, from the moment you enter to what is being stated, spoken, recited, so forth and so on. Why? Because that's what's handed down. And it was a big, big shift in Vatican II. So, so every couple of centuries, there's what we call an ecumenical council where all the major bishops come together to discuss some major issues. And the last time that happened in the Catholic Church was in the 1960s, and it was called the Second Vatican Council or the Second Ecumenical Vatican Council. 
And they determined there, among other things, uh, that you can do most of mass, most of your services in your local language. Until then, everything had to be in Latin. And so there you'd have the same experience that we would just listening to namaz in, in Arabic, right? But imagine if the Juma Khutbah was only in Arabic then. Um, in Latin, it's, it'd even be harder because nobody speaks Latin. At least you have Arabs who speak Arabic, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was a major ruling. And so a lot of people who are more on the conservative side, side of Catholicism really were not favoring this, but that became the dominant ruling because it was considered that this is what's necessary in terms of the practice of Catholicism in the world we're living in right now. There are also other interesting things in the Vatican Council, you know, in terms of response to communism, as well as a respect for other religions. So for, for our purposes, that would be a point that's relevant here. Protestant Christianity says, okay, all of that stuff, you know, is distracting. So a Protestant service has no rules. Obviously, if you're in your Lutheran tradition, you're going to have some rules and other things. But you, you talk to five different Protestants, what do you all do on Sundays? You're going to get five different answers. And so imagine we had a Protestant version of, of Islam. And what would happen? You would literally wipe out the acts of worship. And so to speak, Americanize them. Okay, we're not going to fast in Ramadan. We're going to fast in January because that's the beginning of the year, you know. Uh, and that's we see some of that already in the history, for example, of the Nation of Islam. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of Elijah Muhammad's organization, uh, they removed most of the Arabic terms, and they would call not the Shahada, but they call like the Articles of Faith and such. And then they changed a lot of these things. So in textbook Islam, however, no acts of worship, you keep them exactly as is. But things like khutbah. You can do that as long as part of it's in Arabic, part of it can be in your local language. Um, but you know, if you go to <coughs> Juma in Pakistan, India, what language is, is the Juma Khutbah in? Urdu. The Bayan before the Khutbah is in Urdu. Mm-hmm. The actual Khutbah is in Arabic. Usually oh, the, wow. sheikh, the sheikh gets a book mm-hmm. of, of 50 Khutbahs that the sheikh himself probably can't uh, translate. And mm-hmm. blah, 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 it's about Allah, the Prophet, the Day of Judgment. Prior to that, he has a different book, which is usually like 50 bayans in Urdu, that actually doesn't have any legal value. This is what we do at Juma at Loyola. We, I mean, uh, at Loyola for Juma, uh, uh, is that we will have the bayan, uh, which anybody can give. Mm-hmm. And literally, because it has no Islamic value, a woman can give it, a non-Muslim can give it, anybody can give it, but you know, it's too radical for, for the MSA right now. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's just a speech. But then there's a five-minute khutbah mm-hmm. that's in Arabic. Now, why do we do it that way? Because officially it starts at 140, and all the undergrads show up like at 150. Mm-hmm. And so they still get counted for being there for, for Juma. Mm-hmm. Um, they dismiss the English language portion. Okay. But the actual khutbah itself is literally uh, a paragraph, two paragraphs in Arabic. And is it the same paragraphs every week? I mean... If you know Arabic, then mm-hmm. then uh, you may be able to tell different people say different things. But when I give it, it's the same paragraph every week. So far and so on. Yeah, that's the one where you have to sit down in the middle, right? And then stand. Yes. Yeah. So that's the khutbah. So it's like a paragraph, sit down, stand up, paragraph, and then done. Mm-hmm. If you go to so- a common masjid in America, that's like half an hour long. Mm-hmm. And Uncle Saab is going to give you his whole political analysis, you know, mm-hmm. Israel this, American foreign policy that. And so 
so it took a lot of effort for me to get the embassy to listen to me. And so now it's, it's a bayan, talk about whatever you want. Okay. But then the clip was in Arabic. Okay, so the in the khutbah could be anything. I thought the khutbah was limited to that. So the, so the khutbah is supposed to be a reminder of Allah, a reminder of the Prophet, peace, and a reminder of the Day of Judgment. Okay. That's three sentences. Okay. And then you sit, you seek forgiveness, and then you stand up, and then it's basically uh, a repetition, and you may not necessarily have dua. Okay. And then we're also taught that the khutbah should be short and prayer should be long. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> in the common masjid in America because that's your only weekly Islamic lesson mm-hmm. and because everybody and their dad wants to be a khatib <laughs> right you know you'll have all these long winding you know disconnected uh, khutbas every week mm-hmm. that everyone's been conditioned to not pay attention to <laughs> okay but Thanks. the thing is if you arrive late then you don't, you don't get credit mm-hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say you don't get credit. Basically, the angels are writing down everyone's name who's there. But as soon as the imam says, assalamu alaikum, they close their book so they can pay attention, right? And, and so technically, if we're really going to get technical, because you missed the beginning of the khutbah, you have to pray for us for Zohar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to avoid people having to deal with all that, it literally took like four years to convince the NSA to go along with this, is we have a bayan. Mm-hmm. And then we actually have the, the the chutbah. The chutbah itself usually begins at the hour, like two o'clock or one o'clock mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, the do you do the chutbah at Loyola or somebody else does? So so it'll usually one week it'll be me, another week it'll be a student, back and forth. Okay. And and but the point is that um, the chutbah part um, is just straight Arabic. Maybe I'll get to witness it next year, my senior yeah. year. Yeah, time. exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> you also notice, like you know, on Fridays we do a bayan, a Friday bayan. We don't call it a chutbah; we call it a bayan. Because so that was just your daisiness coming out. I didn't know it had actual meaning to it. It's, it's precision in terms of practice, Islamic practice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. And so, so like, so what I'm saying is that if you go to a common masjid in the subcontinent, you'll have this whole lecture that's just a bayan in Urdu. It has no Islamic value except just as a lecture. Okay, but if so you're just a regular worshiper, you don't know that. A little off topic, but is there a reason why you call it a musalla and not the masjid? Masjid literally is place of sajda, musalla is place of salah. And a lot of times a masjid will have more than just the place of salah, like where you leave your shoes and all that stuff. So the masjid is like the superstructure, and the musalla is the specific room in the masjid where you're doing the actual prayer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but those are terms that they, they started using before me. I always just call it the prayer space. Yeah, prayer room. <laughs> yeah, prayer room. Yeah. Then you know, all, all my colleagues would be like the musala, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, let's continue reading. Let's see, Adel, you want to go with uh, beyond this clean categorical division? Beyond this clean categorical <laughs> division, negotiating the extent to which a particular human act or conduct, whether it be public or private, Primarily involved Ibadat. Ibadat. <laughs> Dyslexic. Just kidding. I'm not. Ibadat or Mu. Mu. Why are you doing it? Was not a simple and oh. equivocal issue for. See, I got that right. Marshall. 
For instance, there were lengthy debates as to whether the prohibition of zina, fornication, adultery, or consumption of alcohol substances falls under the category of ibadat or mu'malat. Uh, alternatively, some mixture of both categories. Nevertheless, as in the case of the debates regarding the par parameters of sharia and fiqh, although in principle, there was a philosophical recognition and the spaces occupied by the sacred and profane require different treatments. In reality, it is the juristic method that played the defining role in determining, determining the function of text, precedent, and rational innovation in the institutional and methodological. Innovation in the treatment of legal questions. Oh, innovation and treatment of legal questions. Ultimately, it was not the legal presumptions attaching to either category, but the institutional and methodolog methodological processes of each legal school of thought the mo that most influenced the way issues were analyzed and determined. Okay, good. So <clears throat> we have the privilege of a thousand years of hindsight. And so I'm saying yeah, you had ibadat and ma'amalat and all that makes complete sense. But when they're figuring these categories out, they're literally constructing this whole vision of Islamic law. And so they decide, yeah, here's one category, ibadah. Here's another category, mu'amalah, right? And then what do we put there? So for example, where does marriage go? Is marriage an act of worship or is marriage uh, a matter of social interaction? And so then, you know, the, it's easy to put the five pillars in acts of worship. But what about when there's prescriptions in Islamic law, whether it be one or the other? And so then those things all get debated through centuries. And then you start seeing through time is that, you know, some start settling in one category and some categories start settling in, in other categories. But this is something that is all fully constructed to, through time, where people are literally deliberating to figure this stuff out. Just like Arabic grammar. You know, the, you know, if you look at the generation of the companions of the Prophet, they didn't go around teaching Arabic grammar. They didn't use terms like verb or noun or anything like that. It's people later who then are trying to learn how to learn and how to teach Arabic that had to invent Arabic grammar. And try to even uh, imagine how huge of a test that is, which for now is, for us, is a nice, simple, easy book. <clears throat> here's nouns, here's prepositions, here's et cetera, et cetera. So that's what he's saying here. And so, so they would use text to figure these things out. They would use precedent, you know, in terms of what do we find in terms of previous generations and how they determine things. We'd use rational thought to figure out how to categorize all actions. All right, and what is it, 808? Let's do just a little bit more. Let's do maybe one more paragraph. All right, uh, I'm gonna go read this next paragraph. Are we at um, beyond, or we uh, already it, did part of that? Yeah, it is in the historical practice. Oh, sure, it is in the historical practice of schools of thought and especially on questions of procedure, jurisdiction, conflict of laws and the compulsory powers of courts that one finds the most pronounced negotiations of the space and balance between the sacred and profane. For instance, throughout Islamic history, courts rarely took jurisdiction of matters involving ibadat, such as performance of prayers. In a rather large genre of literature, dealing with the laws of adjudication, which is aqam al-qada, administrative and executive laws, let's see, aqam al 
Hisba and al Siyasa al Sharia, and the functions of the Muhtasib, who in classical practice were usually market inspectors, Muslim jurists, differentiated between judicial and executive functions. Keep going. Uh, actually, no, this is a good place to pause for a second. So, okay. essentially, what are we saying? How did a lot of Islamic law get constructed? Uh, primarily from addressing practical issues. And who are the people who are addressing the practical issues? It would be judges or market inspectors. So under Omar, for example, he, he assigned a specific job of, of these secret market inspectors that would just literally walk around, um, make sure people, that merchants were not taking advantage of customers. And I forgot her name. This is one of the cases of a very prominent role being given to a woman in, in Medina society. But the point is that these are the people who are on the ground addressing issues immediately. And so that's where a lot of the original construction of Islamic law is coming from. So judges were very rarely involved, if ever, in matters of ibadah. They would be involved in what type of matters, court uh, or a conflict resolution. And that's where a lot of Islamic law's first material, or I should say second material is coming in. The first material is text. Second material is, okay, in those first generations, you know, what were the answers that they had to a lot of the questions? And- okay. Related. So related and overlapping discussions are also found in treatises dealing with the private. Oh, sorry. Can you see? We've lost. She got her. Return. Or not? Huh? Wait. We'll, we'll wait a moment for, for Amina to return. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm cool with that. I don't know if you're asking me. Did you have my permission? <laughs> I love how you made her do most of the readings. <laughs> oh, she's back in my Okay, there you are. Here we go. Okay, it's all good. Yeah, we're just waiting. <laughs> all right, uh, sorry. Do you want to keep reading or is it too complicated? I can just make out a little bit. No, it's okay. I can read it now. Okay. All right. So in this or start from related and overlapping discussions. Okay. Um, related and overlapping discussions are also found in treatises dealing with the private and public normative obligation to enjoin the good and resist what is wrong. Yeah, okay, so mm -hmm. so another early source for material would be what's being written, so to speak, in the Muslim ivory tower. So you would also have commentators and scholars uh, who would who would be writing their own theoretical books. And so think of this mixture: we have texts, we have rulings of early generations, and then we also have these other individual scholars that that are coming up with their theories of Islamic law. And so that's the source material for later people then try to figure out how to further construct everything. And it was the principle for the, the people in the ivory tower. I, ivory tower, I don't mean as a negative term. I mean, they're separated from the, what's happening on the ground often. Which is calling to what is right, forbidding what is wrong. Mm -hmm. In this, oh, keep going. So in this literature and in the actual historical practice, courts did not take jurisdiction of a matter unless there was an actual, 
an actual or real conflict. Courts held that the duty to issue a gang, which are judgments and not fatwas, responses. At the same time, the authority and the discretion of the executive to dispense summary justice or deal out summary penalties was restricted. Among other limitations in any particular case, if either the law or the facts were disputed, the matter had to be referred to the judiciary. Only the judiciary had the legitimate power to interpret the law and establish the facts in any dispute. Interestingly, although varying according to time and place, it was not unusual for litigants to appoint a wakil, agent or lawyer, to argue on their behalf in civil cases. And it was common for litigants to solicit and obtain a fatwa in support from respected jurists and judges considered such conflicting responses, responso, responsa, as advisory or persuasive authority. Okay, Furthermore, so, so, mm -hmm. to, to put that into our society, you're going to the judge for a ruling, but you may be going to a law professor for support. And so the way you would in a trial bring in some experts, here you'd be going to a jurist who is not officially an employee of the government as a judge, but is a teacher and scholar of law mm -hmm. and bring that person's fatwa. So that would be not unlike bringing an expert witness into a trial in a modern situation. And so you see a lot of similarities in terms of how law was done back in those early days to what we have today. So you even have a wakil who can speak for you, who knows the system and how the system operates. So you're not vulnerable <clears throat> or your vulnerability is decreased. And, uh, all right, continue. For, uh -huh. Furthermore, contrary to the unfounded generalizations that plagued the field, again, depending on time and place, very often there was an appellate process and sophisticated procedural rules regulating the circumstances under which a higher court may overrule a lower court within the same jurisdiction or fail to recognize the judgment of another Islamic court from a different jurisdiction. Perhaps- okay. So a lot of that, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, so a lot of that is, seems uh, like uh, uh, we have a lot of parallels in terms of, of the modern uh, American judicial system and even the judicial systems in, in other Muslim majority countries. But the key point, what is the key point to take for our purposes? Often we're imagining Imam Maliki, Shafi'i, Malik, uh, Hanf, uh, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi'i, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal being the judge, as opposed to what they were, which was the jurist articulating answers to questions. And that was a different group of people than the actual judges. And, and, and so there's crossover uh, between the two. But the further you were away from that generation and the further you are away from a Muslim majority society, the more you're turning to the latter, which is the schools of law. But if I'm in Saudi Arabia, if I'm in Pakistan, if I'm in a Muslim court in a different country, uh, it may have influence from Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki law, so forth and so on. But more often than not, they're gonna be relying upon precedence and whatever the legacy of, is of the imperial system that they had, Napoleonic old English common law and, and, and such. Or the jurist would be someone who's sitting in a masjid or sitting in a university or something like that. Uh, let's stop right here. And how much more do we have? Let's see, we have a couple pages. And then we'll continue inshallah tentatively uh, next week, inshallah. Any questions, thoughts?
Okay, Angela. Then we will stop right here. And it's still on my schedule tentatively for next Monday. Hani sent a message saying she can't make it this week or next week, most likely, just because of family activities. But mm -hmm. uh, if you can't make it either, just just let me know, Angela. And tentatively, we'll meet, but we may postpone until January. Alrighty. Subhanak Allahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka wa natubu ilayk. Right, may Allah tell you all, and we'll meet again, Inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Yeah. Okay.